Well, there is something unique about worshiping on Christmas as we did last Sunday and then having the opportunity to worship on New Year's Day the following Sunday. And so I, th- I want to take opportunity, since this is January 1st, 2012, for us to recognize the moment and reflect spiritually on what God might have for us this coming year. And so the, 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 the unique opportunity of a new year is to, on the one hand, look back and to reflect, and on the other hand, to look ahead and to expect, to think about what is coming in this new year. And so uh, perhaps as you've reflected on 2011, maybe some of you would say, man, that was the greatest year of my life. And for others of you, you might say, you know what, that was the most difficult year of my life. And if you're like me, you could, on the one hand, say, yes, that was, that was the greatest year of my life, but it was also the most difficult year of my life. And I'll spare you some of the details this morning, but I want to encourage us that just as Lamentations 3 says that God's mercies are new each day, so they are new each year. We can trust in our good God who loves us and leads us in, uh, in the ways that we should go. But then as we, as we not only reflect, but as we also expect, I want you to look ahead and think about what this year might hold for you and even for us together as a church. So yeah, we, we know that millions of people, right? Perhaps many of you or most of us here this morning will be making what we know now as New Year's resolutions, right? I see a few smiles out there. Maybe some, some resolutions are already on the table. Um, maybe you want to, you know, get in better shape, take better care of your body, and so you want to exercise and, and to, to eat in a more healthy manner. It's probably one that I need to uh, work on, to be honest. Uh, maybe you have some, some, some work goals, some, some, some vocational goals, or if you're a student, maybe you have some, some goals that you've set for this coming semester. Perhaps you have some spiritual goals, some goals between you and God that you might want to share with others to say, you know what, I want to, I want to take some steps forward in this new year to live my life as we've been singing about for God and His glory more than anything else. This new year brings a, a sense of freshness, a sense of, of hope and newness. It, it brings new opportunities for us to live out our faith and seek to live our lives for God and His glory. And so this morning, I want to invite us to, to open up our Bibles to James chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 13 through 17. If you've, if you've used one of the Bibles that we provided for you, that's on page uh, 1013. And what James is going to to do this morning, he's going to give us some instructions on God-centered planning. And so we're going to call this sermon God-Centered Planning for the New Year. And what James is going to do is he is going to warn us, on the one hand, against the, 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 the foolishness of arrogant planning. And on the other hand, he is going to instruct us to make plans with humility, keeping God and his sovereign will in view. That is, that is where our focus needs to be this morning, that we are to make plans with humility, with God and his so- sovereign will in view. So, so the question then becomes, how can we make these plans 
with, with humility, with God and his sovereign will in view? Well, well number one, we should make, humil- uh, make plans with humility, recognizing the uncertainty of the future. Check out verses 13 and 14 with me. What, is, what does James say in chapter 4? He says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So as we get into our our text this morning, it's important to understand the context. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. In, in, in the days just after Jesus had been crucified on a Roman cross, been raised from the dead, and had ascended to the right hand of the Father. And James also was the half-brother of Jesus. And so as the leader of the church, he is penning these words to give the people there guidelines on what it means to live a wise life. If you read the book of, of James, this little letter that James wrote, you're going you're to find that it's really a book of wisdom. It's full of allusions from the book of Proverbs and Jesus' own sermon in Matthew 5-7, through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. What James is getting after, his primary focus is, and we find it in chapter 2, is he wants these Christians to live out a living, breathing, active faith. So that's what we have going on here in chapter 4, is he's going to give them uh, yet another way that they can live in wisdom and reflect this living, breathing, active faith that we should have as followers of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, those who James is addressing here in chapter 4, verses 13 and following, were not walking in wisdom. In fact, they were living their life in a very foolish manner. He gets our attention in verse 13. He says, come now, you who say. Some translations say, now listen. He he wants to arrest their attention, grab their attention for what he's about to share with them. And then he goes on to say, listen up, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. That's helpful for us to understand that the, the first century was a time that was marked by significant commercial growth. Many of you know of the Pax Romana that opened up travel ways all throughout the world at that time. And so it was feasible for someone in James Day to say, hey, we have some grand plans for this coming year. We're going to go and we're going to make business happen. We're going to trade. We're going to make a profit. And this is what is going to go down. You see, for many, business was booming and business was good. So good that, in fact, they became quite arrogant in their planning. And so what James is going to do is he's going to lay down some serious truth for them and for us in verses 14 through 17 that that it was intended to humble them and to correct them and to guide them into a God-centered type of planning for their plans. 
See, what James does is he, he exposes their sense of self-dependence and presumption. And we, 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 we see this, these concepts in verse 13. Look, look at what they say. They say, today or tomorrow, we will go. We will spend. We will trade. We will make a profit. There is certainly a sense of, of overconfidence here. A sense of independence, self-dependence, self-reliance. Certainly a sense of presumption here. They were so sure, so certain of what was to come. And yet James is not going to let that ride. In fact, he kind of lays the smack down, if you will, in verse 14 by doing a couple of things. He first exposes their folly and seeks to humble them by hammering on the uncertainty of tomorrow. Look, look in verse 14. He says, yet you who say these things, you have these grand plans, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You who are so confident in what tomorrow will bring, you don't even know what's coming ahead. And we know this is true to life, right? Who of us can say with absolute certainty what's going to happen in the next 24 to 48 hours. Can any of us? We don't know if the stock market is going to be bearish or bullish. Right, Fish? Jeremy works in the, the financial sector. We don't know if, if the Pats, for you sports fans, the Pats are going to beat Miami today or if the Celtics will beat the Washington Wizards the next two days. We hope they do, right? We don't know what's coming. We don't, we don't know who God might uh, allow to us to bump into, that we might give them a word of encouragement over the next couple of days. We, we, have, we have no idea whether it will take us 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 40 minutes when we drive home today after our service. We, we, we don't know. And so James seeks to, to teach them that, that we don't know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Why don't we know this? Is because we are not in control of the future, right? We are not all-knowing. We do not see the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. And yet we know the one who does know what tomorrow will bring, right? If we know God, the triune God, if we are followers of Christ, we know the one who knows what tomorrow will bring. We know the one who is all-knowing, the one who flung the stars into existence, calls them each by name, and holds the universe in the palm of his hand. We know the one that in the words of Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, he says, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. This is the hope of the believer in Christ. While we don't know what is coming ahead, we know God, the one who does know, and we can trust in him, that he is good, that he has a plan, that he is working out in each of our lives. And so James kind of comes to the table and he says, let's sit down and talk. You who are so confident, number one, you don't know what tomorrow will bring. The, the future is uncertain. But then number two, 
the, the kind of the second dose of humility, the, the second weapon that he pulls out of his arsenal to correct them and to guide them is to say, look, you, you who don't even know the future of, of events and times and what is to come, you do not even know the future of your own life. He he says this as he continues on in verse 14. He, he, he has this dialogical approach. He's going to ask them a sobering question and provide a sobering response. Well, look at what he says. He says, what is your life? Let's pause right there and ask ourselves that question. What is your life? What is my life? Is life simply the sum of our days? Is life simply the sum of our accomplishments? The sum of our relationships? The sum of our hopes and desires? What is, what is your life? What is our life? James says this, for you are a mist. You are a mist. Your life, as some translations say, is but a vapor. And he explains, he says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Why don't you go home this afternoon and look in the mirror when you get home, you know, the next time you go wash your hands or tonight when you, when you brush your teeth, hopefully you do that. And, um, and why don't you look in the mirror and say, you are a mist. How's that? It's just for like a, a sobering dose of reality. He says, you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The, the Greek is even stronger here. He says, you are, it says, you're a mist, which being seen for a little while, even then is disappearing. This is our life. James lays down this strong confrontational word as a means to humble these people who are so confident of tomorrow. James says, you, not only do you, do you not know what's coming tomorrow in terms of events and time, but you don't even know if you will be here tomorrow. So make your plans, not with this self-confidence and presumption, but make your plans in light of who God is and his will for your life. We see this all throughout Scripture. Uh, listen to what Psalm 39, verse 5 says. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths. This is a handbreadth right here. You have made my days a few handbreadths. And my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. That's all we are. Our life is a, is, a, is a mist, a vapor, a breath. And haven't we been, haven't we been reminded of this in 2011? Think about those that, that passed away this past year. Dan Weldon, a two-time Indy 500 uh, IndyCar winner, dies at the age of 33. Steve Jobs, we all know, creator of many of the products that we use every single day, dies of cancer at age of 56. Amy Winehouse, pop singer, dead at 27. 
even some of my heroes from church history. This is kind of, I try to remind myself of this occasionally. Uh, some of my heroes, uh, Robert Murray McShane, David Brainerd, great missionary, uh, Jim Elliott, another great missionary from this past century, all died at the age of 29. Henry Martin, missionary to India, dead at 31. Oswald Chambers, the great, Chambers, the great devotional writer, dead at 43. Even one of my, my, my greatest heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon, didn't make it to age 60. He was dead at 57. Our life is but a vapor. It's a breath. It's a mist. But I hope that this word doesn't discourage you this morning. Rather, it should sober us on the one hand, but motivate us on the other. If our life is but a breath, number one, we should remember that, that God is over every detail of every affair of our life. If God knows the, very, the number of the very hairs on our head, surely he knows the very number of our days. Our life is in God's hands. Psalm 31 says that our times are in God's hands. We can trust in this good God. He is over every detail. But number two, if, if our days are but a breath, whether we live to be 23 or 93, the goal should be, if our life is but a, but a, but a breath, a vapor, a mist, then we should seek to maximize it now for God's glory. We should seek to live every day in light of eternity. If this life is so short, so microscopic, infinitesimal, on the, the scale of eternity, then surely we should seek to live each day in such a way that it counts for eternity. Is that your approach for 2012? I mean, are you, are you just willing to say, like, God, today, when you wake up, January 2nd, today, January 14th, today, God, I'm going to give you everything that I have. I'm going to seek to live for you in, in word and thought and deed. Everything is for you. He made us. He created us to live for his glory. So we should seek to make the most of every opportunity, every day that he gives us to live for him and to reflect how great and good that he is. You know, we sing this, this phrase and we hear this phrase during Christmas season, Gloria in excelsis Deo. What on earth is that? It means glory to God in the highest. It's what the angels sang to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest because God was bringing his, his plan of redemption to the world in Jesus Christ. But this should not just be a phrase that we say and we sing and we read at Christmas time. This should be the goal of every single day of our life that our lives would be to God's glory to the utmost, to the highest that we would reflect our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and live with him and walk with him, for him, every single day of our lives. Let's not spend our time and energy on what is trivial. Let's spend our time and energy on what lasts, what's going to be really of substance that's going to matter for all of eternity. What a great opportunity we have 
to live every single day for God and his glory. Let's take the words of the psalmist to heart. It's a great verse for the new year, and it's actually our meta memo for, verse for this week. Psalm 90, verse 12, it, it, the psalmist writes, so teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I mean, Christians of all people should count each day as precious and should seek to view it as a gift from God and, and, and seek to live out our lives for the sake of God's glory. And so with these, these two strong points in verse 14 concerning uh, the, the uncertainty and the brevity of life, James attacks the, the self-confidence and the presumption of these merchants who say, hey, this is what's going on. We know the deal. We're going to live our life like this over the next year. He says, hold on just a second. Make your plans with some humility, recognizing the uncertainty of the future. But, but then uh, what those verses should do is, is actually cause us to look outside of ourself, right? Beyond ourself and to someone who truly does hold the future. And that's where James turns our attention in verse 15. Verses 15 through 17 continue to teach us that we should make plans recognizing God and his sovereign will. Look at, look at verse 15. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So let's just stop right there. Did you, did you catch the implicit thought of verse 15? What, what is James affirming here? James is, is saying, okay, so be encouraged, all right? Ross, I know you got your iPad this morning, all right? Be encouraged. We don't have to throw away our day planners, all right? We don't have to, like, crush our smartphones and get rid of our, you know, calendars on our nice computers and laptops and whatnot. I mean, it's okay to plan. In fact, it's very biblically wise to plan. Those of you who know me know that I'm still working on this area of my life of planning and thinking ahead and being really precise with the details. And so, so, so it's wise to plan. This is all throughout Scripture. Proverbs 6, 6 and 7. What is, what is Solomon, right? He says, go to the ant. <laughs> Another dose of humility for us. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food and harvest. So the ant is not only commended for her work ethic, but also the fact that she has a game plan, that she, that she works it out so that she might provide in the days to come. As the modern-day proverb says, perhaps you've heard it, a failure to plan is what? A plan to fail. God is a God who has a plan. And he is accomplishing his plan even now as we speak. Jesus had a plan. He said no to certain requests so that he could fill out the primary mission of his life. And we too should have a plan for our days, for our weeks, for our life. Let's be clear. James is not saying, he is not attacking the fact that we make plans. He is addressing how we make our plans, right? And he lays out the solution in verse 15. He says, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. 
With these four words, James lays down the crux of the issue. This is the solution. This is how we can live the wise life. This is how we can live out a living, active, breathing faith. We say, we make our plans by saying, if the Lord wills. This statement is a recognition of God's sovereignty over all things. He created all things. He sustains all things. He calls the shots. He has the final say in everything, every detail of our lives. And so the statement, if the Lord will, on the one hand, it takes care of that. But then number two, it also displays the the wisdom of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Hopefully you know these verses if you've been in the faith very long. And if these are new to you, then then definitely write these down and seek to to know them by heart. What what does Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 say? It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways, acknowledge him, know him, and he will make straight your paths. This is, this is a great application of, of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We make plans. We think about what's coming in the week ahead, the month ahead, the year ahead. By all means, make some, res- make some resolutions for 2012. But do so recognizing God and his sovereign will. I mean, if the Lord wills, this is what I'd like to do. If the Lord wills, this is my plan. If the Lord wills, we will accomplish this this year. This is what we do as a church. Man, we have some goals. We have some dreams. We have some prayers that we want to accomplish as a church. So we're going to go hard after those goals. But we aren't in control of them. Man, I would love it if, you know, we had like 12 rows and the, the place is packed by the fall. 175 people. Man, I can see that. It's possible. But I don't know if it's God's will. So we make plans, but we make plans according to the will of God. And don't miss the subtlety of what follows in the text of these these four words. If the Lord wills, what does he say? We will live and do this and that. I mean, James won't let us forget what he's just argued in verse 14, right? (coughs) He he argues here really from, from the greater to the lesser. He says, if the Lord wills, we will, we will live, <laughs> number one, right? We'll just, we'll just have breath. We'll just keep breathing and having life. And, and then from the greater to the lesser, lesser, not only will we live, but we will do this or that, if the Lord wills. The fundamental problem of those rebuked in the text was that they took God out of the equation. They removed God from the picture of their plans. What James wants us to understand is that there are no, none, no God-free zones in this life. It doesn't matter if you're a student. It doesn't matter if you're a businessman, businesswoman. It doesn't matter if you're a parent, if you stay at home with the kids, Whatever, whatever your station in life is right now, there are no God-free zones. What these merchants try to do is, is separate the, the secular from the sacred, and yet we understand that Christ is the Lord of all. He has his say in every sphere of our lives. And so, 
to help us, James says, look, there are no God-free zones. We need to understand that and get that clear. And James says, what's even worse than all of this is, is to not only not recognize that there are no God-free zones, but it's actually to boast about it and to be arrogant about your plan. And he says, not only are you foolish by not considering God and his will for your life, but you are actually evil because you boast about it. You're so confident and proud that, that you would say, you know what, man, we have this together and there is nothing that can stop our plan. Man, we have it uh, all together and, you know, uh, nothing, no one can thwart what we have mapped out for the coming business year. And James says, look, that's, that's arrogant. And even more than that, it's evil. To, 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 to boast in, in, in their arrogance, as, as verse 16 says, look at verse 15, 16, it says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. To, to boast in our arrogance is referring to proud confidence in our, in our own knowledge, our own cleverness, not recognizing that it's a gift from God, not, not recognizing God and his, his will, his plan for our lives. And so what James does then in verse 17 is he, he sums up this discussion by concluding with a final word about God's will. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. God desires for each and every one of us to live with his will in view. There are some things that we don't know what's ahead. And so we make our plans with, with, with humility, with a God-centered focus that God is sovereign over all of our future days. But then there are a lot of parts of God's will that we are certain of, that we do know, that we do see good in front of us that God wants us to do. And so James says, look, if you know good that you are supposed to engage in, then you need to do it. If not, you are actually in sin. Isn't that sobering? I mean, most of the time we, we think about sins of, of commission, those, those sins that we commit knowingly and willfully. I mean, we kind of struggle enough with those, right? So then it's, well, what do we do when uh, then we throw on top of that, man, there are not only bad things that I, that I do and, and shouldn't, but then there are good things that I should do and I don't. What do we do? The same thing that we do when we come to Christ, right? We throw ourselves on the grace of God. We ask God to fill us with his spirit, and we say, God, help us. It's not, it's not a command to do every good thing that's possible in the world, right? I mean, we're only one person. We only have so much time. But those things that God puts in front of us within our realm of stewardship and responsibility, we are to do those things, to do them with all our heart. Jesus tells a, a powerful parable in Luke 12 about a rich man who made some plans. I want to just read a bit of the dialogue here. Uh, what happens is there was someone in, in the crowd who was hearing Jesus teach, and he says, Teacher, tell my brother to invite the, the inheritance between us. And Jesus answers, as he often does, with another question. He says, he says Man, who made me judge or arbiter over you? And, and, then, and then he said, this and he tells this parable he says take care 
and be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. These great plans of this rich man are all laid out. But Jesus continues in verse 20. He says, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. What a stunning parable for us to consider this morning as we wrap up our time in God's word. We can make all kinds of plans, but our plans are foolish and they are nothing unless we make them in view of God, unless we are in this new year rich toward God in our plans. So that's what I want to encourage us with this morning, to be rich toward God in everything that we do. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've never, you've never really committed your life to following Jesus, something that you maybe kind of twittered around with, you've played with, you've explored a bit. Man, I'm praying that, that this reality, and you know it's true, your life is but a breath. It's a vapor. It's a mist. Would you consider that you will not be here very long? So let's start today by getting our life right with God so that for all eternity, we will spend it with him in his joyful presence forever and not separated from him in a place called hell that is quite unimaginably the worst thing that we could ever think of or imagine. If you've never clung to Christ, if you've never decided to follow Christ, to turn from the way you've lived your life to this point, to, to living for God and embracing the gift that he gives us through the cross and his resurrection, then, then, then consider it today. Respond to God today. If you have questions about what it means, come and find us after the service. Email us. Do something that would take a step toward God and, and, and respond to the great salvation that God gives us. But, but then, uh, for, for, for really all of us, but particularly, especially for, for those of us who know Jesus, well, let me ask this question. What God-centered resolutions do you need to make in 2012? What God-centered resolutions do you need to make that would more clearly reflect God in his glory in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your pursuits in life? How can you more faithfully and fervently pursue God this new year? Let's make some God-sized, God-centered plans for 2012. And let's pray that God would work through us in radical ways that he might receive more and more glory through us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in the word. God, thank you for this, this new year that is upon us, that starts today. And Lord, we pray that 
you would show us where we need to make some God-centered plans and some God-centered resolutions for this upcoming year. Lord, all of our lives are different. They, they, no, no two lives in this room look exactly the same. And so we ask that your spirit would, would speak to us even now and begin to show us over the next day or two or, or, or 10, Lord, how we can uh, transform and pray that you would transform our lives and bring reform to our life uh, in such a way that, that we would more faithfully uh, pursue you and glorify you in this new year. Father, as a church, let us encourage one another to those ends. And Father, for our church, for this, this, this new church here in Medford, Lord, would you push us forward to greater days ahead, trusting in you and your sovereign provision and will for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.